God in heaven, we, uh, we thank you that we get to come before you. We thank you for your word. Uh, we ask that you would open up to us, that you would uh, continue to push us and drive us towards uh, our community and how we can uh, be together in love and like-mindedness and in the spirit of truth. Please guide us, Lord. We pray that you would fill our hearts and our minds with your truth, that you would transform us and shape us according to it, uh, and that we would grow together as we are here today on your, on your day to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, today we're going to be talking about uh, church membership and confession of faith. So uh, that's, that's our title heading. Brett told me to have a title so that he could put it at the top of his page. So church membership and confession of faith, or just confession. Um, I don't mean the Westminster Confession of Faith. I mean when we confess together or when we confess or profess faith uh, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about our shared confession of faith. Um, so in this whole kind of section, um, I'm not trying to offer a, a defense of church membership. We talked about this last week. We talked about church membership, why you should do it. Um, I know we're all relatively on board with church membership or you probably wouldn't be here. Um, so I'm not trying to defend it. My goal, however, is to press out, is to point out how, <clears throat> to point out that church membership carries obligations uh, to God and to each other. And those obligations include the, the, the commands of community and, and how it flows into community and how church membership and community are, are interlinked. So what we're trying to talk about is this idea of, of biblical covenantalism or simply the fact that we are a covenant community and that membership into the covenant community comes with it lots of stuff. And a lot of those things are obligations. They include commands in Scripture and things that we are required to do. Um, so my goal is to, is to push us to show how faithfulness in uh, these areas to the commands, to the obligations of covenant membership, uh, how faithfulness in these areas builds community. How it builds community. Um, because membership in the covenant is never conceived of in Scripture apart from uh, the visible community of God's people. If you're part of the, of the covenant community, if you're part of the covenant, you're part of the community, right? You, you can't be separate from the visible community of faith. That's uh, it's intertwined. Um, now, our, our catechism, our confession does say that uh, you can technically have salvation outside of the visible church, but that's an extraordinary situation. Ordinarily, salvation is, is linked with membership and connection to the visible church of God. Um, the visible covenant community. And so the way that you get in right, to the covenant uh, is baptism. It's initiated by baptism. John, Jesus says in John 3, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So to be born of water and spirit means to be born again uh, and also includes this, uh, this reference to baptism, this imagery of baptism as, as a washing, a regeneration of sorts. Um, and that it, it's the sacrament of initiation into the kingdom of God, uh, which is another way of saying into the visible community of God's people, the visible covenant community of God's people. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body... Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Right, we're baptized into 
the body. It's the sacrament of initiation into the visible covenant community of God's people. Or the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith 28 says, Baptism is a sacrament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only, but including, for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church. Uh, so to be a part of the covenant means to be a part of the people of the covenant. And this means uh, that church membership has, has various aspects in how we relate to the people of the covenant. So this covenant community, right, church membership, as, as we're talking about it, covenant membership is tied to the visible church community. And so there's three aspects of church membership that we're going to talk about. Three aspects. Um, three, I guess, dimensions. One of them is confession. Uh, the second is commitment. And the third is accountability. So these are the three aspects that we're going to look at as we, as we unpack what does it mean for us to be covenant community members and the obligations therein, how it relates to community. Um, so the first is confession, and commitment, and accountability. So we'll take some time today to talk about confession. Um, and roughly, these accord to the three uh, aspects of the image of God, um, the three Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, mind, heart, and life. So confession... This aspect of the church membership accords to faith and the mind. Do you remember our virtue series that we did? I guess that was two years ago. Where we looked at the virtues of the Christian faith, and typically they're, they're grouped according to three different aspects, mind, heart, and life. Um, well, we're getting at some of that stuff. It's a little bit similar. So, again, membership in God's covenant requires a connection to the visible church. You must be connected in a visible way to the visible body of Christ. And we get there right, through baptism and through confession of faith, through, through verbally, outwardly uh, confessing our faith. So what is it that we confess? Right, when, you, when you someone stands up before the church and, and confesses faith, what is it that they confess? Do they just kind of go off the, off the cuff, whatever they want to confess? Jesus is my homie. Is that good? John, you had your hand up. Of the name of Jesus Christ. Okay. Okay, Jesus is my only Savior. Charlie? That he died for us and that God raised him from the dead. Mm-hmm. The promises. Yeah, that Jesus died and yet rose again. Saved us from our sins. Dave? Yeah. Yeah. Our yeah. Our sinfulness. Anything else that you would throw in there, Michelle? The word of God is the inerrant and infallible. Yeah. Yeah. That the word of God is is the word of God. It's inerrant, infallible. It's the only word. Matthew? As part of that confession, we also commit to belonging to and engaged in the local church. Yeah. Yeah, we confess our need for the local church, that this is something that we're that we're committing to verbally. Um, those are all really good, right? Confession is it includes all of those things, right? It's it's essentially what are the what are the fundamental truths of the Christian faith? Or another way to put it is if you left out one of these things, would it still be Christianity? 
Right? Would it still be Christianity if we said the Bible's the word of God and it's perfect and inerrant and Jesus died for my sins, but he's not God? Nope. Yeah, what if you said Jesus died for my sins, he was God, but the Bible's got lots of errors in it and we can't super trust everything it says and there's lots of different traditions and ways of interpreting and it's all just kind of loosey-goosey. John? Okay. Yeah, Jesus is the word. We have to believe in all of it. Yeah, so, you know, we, we have particular vows when someone professes faith, when they come up and they confess faith in Jesus Christ. Um, those vows are, are notably absent of language about confessions and catechisms and doctrines of theology and systems, but is very packed with the core fundamental doctrines of, of the Christian faith, the things that you could not do without. Jesus is, is God. He is the Son of God, the Trinitarianism, the Bible, sinfulness, our need for a Savior, that Jesus is our only Savior, our commitment to a local church. All these things right, are, are the things that we hold in common. Uh, Paul says this in Ephesians 4, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Right? We have one faith. There aren't lots of faiths. There's not multiple faiths. There's not multiple confessions. There's not multiple truths. Uh, there is one Lord and one faith. It's the faith. And so a public uh, confession of faith is an acknowledgement of this one faith, this one truth. Uh, it's, and it's what we hold in common. It's our common faith and our common Lord. Um, so why do we do it publicly? Why does it got to be public in front of everybody? Isn't that just awkward? And what about for someone who's really stage fighty and they don't want to stand in front of people and say the word yes five times? Okay, the Bible tells us to, but where does it tell us to? Mm-hmm. Jesus says, if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Okay? Charlie? It's been consistently the standard practice of covenant uh, relationships. So you are actually taking covenant vows, and God in the old covenant, right, he would set the terms, and the people would have to say, we will do all that the Lord has said. Okay. But why can't you just do that with God in your in your bedroom? Because God has set up officers, representatives of himself to oversee and caretake his people, and they are the guardians, right? Okay. They're, they're officers and they're the guardians, caretakers, John? Yeah, John's saying that it's a requirement to be part of the body. It's, it's one body, or it's, and it's a visible body. It's a visible building. And so the, the initiation into that visible building should be just as visible. Right? If it's private and hidden, 
that's, that doesn't quite make sense, right? Imagine also the, or, or think about how scripture talks about the church as a bride and this imagery of, uh, of a marriage. Um, what happens if, if a, a boy and a girl um, just decide with no one else present, okay, we're, we're married now and we're gonna make vows to each other and we're gonna be married and everyone has to call us married. Um, what's wrong with that picture? What's missing? Okay, vows. But what if they made those vows just in private, just them two? Witnesses. Why are witnesses important? Anybody? Okay, to validate. Yeah, to make sure you actually said the right vows, not weird ones. John? In a legal sense, it takes two or three to confirm a statement or a fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, witnesses confirm, um, or put it another way, when they become married and they go off into the world and there have been no witnesses, who's holding them accountable to those vows? Nobody. Yeah. And so what happens if the husband says, well, we never made vows, and the wife says, we totally did, <laughs> I was there, this was a week ago, husband's like, no, actually we didn't. And now it's his word versus hers. How do you know the truth, right? If it's just, now it becomes a really disastrous situation. But if there's someone, lots of people, hopefully, who are actually witnessing, there's, there's now uh, validation of the vows. Okay, good ones. Those are good vows. And we all agree those are good ones. And there's accountability to those vows. Um, that if the husband runs off, the church and all the witnesses can say, no, we saw him make vows and he just broke them. So that, that means, right, here's the legal situation. Um, otherwise, it's kind of fair game. And so the public confessions of faith are important for those similar reasons. To validate, yes, that's the right confession. You confess the right things, right? It's not just whatever you kind of wanted to say. Um, or whatever you decided was good, it's actually validated by the covenant community. They say yes. They say yes to those vows, to what you are saying and confessing, and then accountability to those, uh, to those vows. That there's witnesses who can say, yes, you made vows that you said you believe that Jesus is God, and now you're saying he's not. You've broken those vows. Um, so a couple verses to throw in as well. First John 1 John 4, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. In 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you're called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Right, Paul is talking specifically about a public confession before witnesses, not simply a private in my heart thing with God. Charlie? 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 1 Timothy 6.12. 1 John 4.15. So again, um, this is a public thing. It's public because it's, uh, it's about the, the visible initiation into the visible covenant community. Uh, there's witnesses involved. Um, there's validation of, of the confession. It marks this entrance into the visible community. Um, 
so what's the flip side of that? What's, what, what, it, what do you see in churches, for instance, that have been captured by a spirit of individualism? What is confession in churches that, have, that are deeply steeped in individualism? Okay, haphazard. Um, what do they call it? They don't call it confession. They call it something else. Matthew? Uh, giving your yeah, giving your testimony. What's the difference? Your testimony. I mean, when, we, when we give up and, and make a post of faith, we're at what we said, we're acceding to the ability of Sure. I, I would not go as far to say fully self-centered necessarily unless it's in the context of taking place of the confession of faith. But we all have a testimony, right? If, if, you, if someone came up and said, well, what's your testimony? I, I would describe how God has worked in my life, right? That's not a bad thing by itself. God has worked in my life, and I have experiences that testify to that, that are my testimony about it. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. We do give testimony to the session of, okay, how has God worked in your life? How have you seen it? Um, that's, that's correct. But when it takes the place of a confession, one sec, Charlie, when, when the testimony takes the place of confession, what we're really saying is what, what brought you here was your personal experience of God, and that doesn't actually unite you to the rest of the people in the room because we all have separate testimonies. Right? We all have different testimonies. God has worked in all of our lives in, in unique ways because we're unique people. And, and if we were to all compare and contrast, we'd have radically different ones. Um, however, when we come and we confess a common faith, common beliefs in the truths of Scripture, the truth, the faith of God, that does unite us. Because now we're, we are united by that common faith. Because we share that in common. It's not separate testimonies and all individual. It is actually a corporate joining together in this one faith, this one belief, this one confession. Uh, Charlie, you had your hand up. Yeah. Yeah. The more vague you are, the more you might be able to go fish for people. But again, it puts people at the center rather than the very specific exclusive claims of Christ. Yeah. Right? Which is what we're called to defend, take that practice. Yeah. Yeah, Charlie. Charlie's saying um, that when you put testimony front and center, you're highlighting personal experience over the revelation of God, highlighting the individual over over the corporate. You're also saying, um, uh, I forget the rest of the things you said to remind them, but <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, but yes, absolutely. Um, so this is a public confession of a shared faith. 
and it's in witnesses, before witnesses, who validate and who then hold accountable. Uh, this means that the public confession uh, that we're talking about is covenantal. And because it's covenantal, it's binding. That means it carries obligations. It means that you are held to these things. Um, and uh, because it's in the context of the visible covenant community, uh, it's not outside of the covenant community. It's not held outside of it. It's held in because it's covenantal. It's binding. And so public confession binds us in two ways. First, it binds us by together. First, it binds us together by a united confession. It, 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 it's the ropes that, that tie us together where now we're tied because we have this common faith, this common confession. And uh, it, it now holds us and binds us to the obligations of the covenant. Uh, it binds us to the obligations of the covenant. That as we're entering into the covenant, we are making vows and, and public confession that I am, I know what I'm doing, and I say yes to it, and I'm going to keep these, these obligations, and the church holds us accountable to that. Uh, so we'll talk about accountability uh, either next week, yeah, probably next week, um, but for today, let's, let's talk about how confession binds us to each other, um, and uh, possibly, well, we may not actually get to it, but we'll talk at least about how it binds us together. So how does a united confession binds us how does a united confession bind us together? How does that bind us together? Matthew? It gives us a common set of knowledge and understanding. We all say we believe the Apostles' Creed, then we all have I know what you believe and you have Yeah. Yeah, shared assumptions shared foundational assumptions about how the world works, right? A shared worldview. That we're saying, the Bible is the word of God. It's perfect. Jesus is the son of God. Salvation by him, through him alone, grace alone. All these things, right, bind us together. Now we have a shared foundation that we build off of. In other words, in the covenant community, if division about whether something is true or not arises, how do we unify, and how do we address those divisions? What do we do? Where do we go? How do we know it's true? I'm asking you guys. Yeah. You have to appeal to a standard. And, and if you're an individual... If you're individualistic, that standard will be yourself, what seems true to you. And if you're not, if you're covenantal, you'll say, well, it's the Bible. We have to go to the Bible to, to find out what's true and to resolve. And, and that's our standard that we're holding up. And that's what we've all entered into the covenant community, community claiming, say, we're, we're holding the Bible up above all else, that this is actually the word of God, the only perfect uh, rule of faith, and without that, without that common standard, without that common faith, without that, without that common confession, um, we become, as Paul said, swept away by every wind of doctrine. Right? We don't have a foundation. We're not rooted somewhere. Another way to put it is without, I, I think, without a common confession, there is no community. Without a common confession, there is no community. You just have a bunch of people in a room. 
but they could all be in completely different places, believing completely different things, coming at the world through completely different uh, lenses. And that's what you typically get in American evangelical individualistic churches. There's, there isn't a lot of unity. People come and go by the winds of doctrine. There is no shaping and forming to, to the rule, the standard, the word of God. Um, so a strong community then is a community that's like-minded. A strong community is a like-minded community. So I'm going to read a, a couple verses. Romans 15, Paul says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus. That's the, uh, it's the New King James Version. Um, the ESV says to live in harmony with each other. Um, but I, I like the New King James because it specifically says, be, may he grant you to be like-minded toward one another. In 1 Peter 3, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Philippians 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So like-mindedness is, is a strong component, is a key component of a strong community, like-mindedness. Um, naturally, this should arise, this should raise up lots of questions. Such as, well, what happens if we disagree? What happens if we go to the Bible and we're reading it earnestly and we come away for, with different interpretations? Right? Does that mean that we're not like-minded? Um, that's a great question. Let's, what do you guys think? Does this mean, does like-mindedness mean complete conformity to the same exact theology and doctrine? Charlie. Charlie said that as long as it's not in the primary foundational first importance matters, um, because those are really important, right? If we disagree about whether Jesus is God, we are not like-minded. But if we disagree over whether it's infralapsarian or superlapsarian, we could work together. <laughs> and, and most of you, and, and me included, don't know what that means. So we don't have to worry about it very much. Um, I still don't know what those words mean. All through seminary, I was like, what does this mean? And no one could tell me. So I guess it's not important. Um, so what this means is that we do not have to have the exact same theology and doctrines and systems in order to be like-minded. So in other words, is like-mindedness a product of intellectual attainment? Or is like-mindedness a product of humility? Right, is it... What? Okay, John says both. Um, well, let me say it a different way. Is it a product of how smart you are or of how the Lord has sanctified you and granted you this? I, I think it's humility and sanctification would be better ways to put that. Yeah, I think so too. Sanctification is a season of time that ends when you do But it begins when you become a Christian. However, if you catch that person um, within the first year, 
Yeah, sure. Well, and there are lots of people that we hold very highly, esteem highly, and would say we're like-minded with, and yet there are significant doctrinal differences, like Sproul, Spurgeon, um, C.S. Lewis, Chesterton to some extent. Um, right? these, these authors, you could, you could read their works and come away thinking, man, this is a brother. This is someone who gets it, who, who loves the Lord, and, and yet Chesterton hated Calvinism. Like detested Calvinism, wrote against Calvinism all the time. But when you read Chesterton, you can't help but think like, man, <laughs> he, he gets something about God and the Christian life that I, I don't get. And he's Roman Catholic, C.S. Lewis. Right? He understands depravity. He understands the human heart. He understands God's grace. And yet, we would not read C.S. Lewis and think, yes, I'm going to adopt everything that he taught. Um, no. But like-mindedness is not, not really primarily about the intellectual attainment. That doesn't mean intellectual thought and, and, and using your brain is, is bad. It's actually a good thing. But like-mindedness is primarily a product of, of that humility. And Paul says, may God grant it to you. May God grant you like-mindedness. May God give it to you. Like-mindedness is this togetherness that stems from our, our love and our acceptance of, of the truths of God that he works in us by his spirit where we, we in humility, we don't look at each other as objects for debate. Um, we look at each other as brothers and sisters and, and we strive together towards what the Bible says. Right? We hold something higher. Uh, Charlie, you had your hand up. Yeah, I, I would just Yeah. 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 It, the aspect of humility, the focus on humility, or saying, I don't have it all figured out. And actually, you don't need to have it all figured out. Praise God. Right? We don't need to uh, have every single last minutia and, and uh, iota hammered out in order for us to then have unity, in order for us to then have like-mindedness, in order for us to be able to do anything as a community. No, we can actually, we're actually here and brought in and we have unity and a large part of that is because of that common confession too. That that foundation, those foundational truths are that foundation that we fall upon. That even should we end up disagreeing, perhaps even strongly about secondary issues, things of secondary importance that are not salvific, that are not about the Trinity, it's not about the doctrine of Jesus Christ, but secondary things. We can actually have disagreement about them, perhaps even strongly, and yet be like-minded. Right? That's a beautiful thing, and it's a product of God. And we should be praying for that as a church. We should be praying and asking God to grant us like-mindedness, to grant us this humility that we can say, I, I don't have it all figured out, we get to come together and be together to, as one body with one faith and yet disagree and yet still be in the progress, still be processing, still be learning, still be growing and holding it all loosely and saying whatever God wants to teach us.
or whatever God wants to teach us. Um, but what would you say to someone who says that like-mindedness is actually limiting and dangerous? Let me list you a few things that they would say. Like-mindedness can limit healthy debate and growth. Conversely, diversity challenges and shapes our thoughts and beliefs. And belief systems can become solidified and limit growth. <laughs> I just exasperated Michelle. <laughs> I didn't say these things. Any thoughts? What would you say? I saw John first. Um, I would say that the word of God is limiting. It is antithesis. There yeah. should be division. Yeah. And if there isn't, then you're not believing in the word of God. Yeah. There, there sh yeah. there should be hard boundaries that we bump up against and rebound off of that we cannot go past. We put those on our freeways called guardrails. Yeah. <laughs> They're good. I like them. Matthew? I was going to say something similar to John. I think I mean, the Bible is truth. There is one objective standard of what's true. Uh, and you can't, you can't have an argument with somebody, say, about creationism versus evolution, or maybe about God versus atheism. Atheism, does God exist or does God not exist? Because we know that there's one standard of truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you can't treat both arguments as if they're intellectually or morally equivalent. Mm -hmm. Christianity is, is better But the community of the church is not a community where we all just bring whatever we want to believe. It's based on God and God's love. We ought to be able to, to have our opinions channel or our beliefs challenged and defend them out of Scripture. Uh, and that's fine. But that's not, we're not trying to create a society where all opinions are welcome and equally valid. Yeah, because they're not. Right. Yes? What I found is those are defensive statements. And part of the reason is they don't want to believe what Scripture says, so they'll mix it up and they'll come this way at it and that way and, and get their own interpretation to allow themselves to do whatever the heck they want to do instead of being submissive to God's Word. Yeah. Yeah, they, it's really when we start to dismantle some of these guardrails, what we're really trying to do is say, well, it can be as open as, as, as possible so that I can have the freedom to believe what I want to believe, uh, regardless of whatever. Yeah, it's very dangerous. Charlie? Very obviously, you have not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is and and healthy debate and growth are literally aspects of the covenant community, right? Iron sharpens iron. Like I really appreciate talking to you, Charlie, because I feel sharpened afterwards, um, and I appreciate talking to to lots of other people too, because it's it, as we in our, as in this covenant community together, right? We are being challenged together over these secondary issues. However, the Bible does something really cool 
where the Bible tells us a lot of beautiful, amazing things and makes it very clear what's of first importance. But for other things, it kind of builds a, it builds a, a fence, right? It, it fences in a yard, and those fences are made of solid titanium, and you cannot go past them. But inside, it's there's a lot more freedom, right? So the Bible sets up these fences for us to live inside of, and inside of the fences, we can have diversity and growth and challenging each other and, and, and working through tough issues and thinking through and even disagreeing about various issues, but we can't go past those fences. Right? As soon as you start to go past those fences, you've actually left what we would call orthodoxy, but you've, you've breached the common faith um, that we've been talking about. So those, those fences are are really important. Really? Yeah, we don't want our, our faith to grow in that respect as in change and keep up with the times. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Mutation is also growth. Yeah. yeah. We don't want to mutate. We want to grow as a tree, not some weird thing. Yeah. Charlie, did you have your? Yeah. Sexual slavery. Yeah? One of the things the uh, Westminster Confession uses is liberty. And what are the liberties that we have in Jesus Christ? We have freedom from no hope. We have a hope. Yep. We have freedom from bondage of sin. We have freedom to grow in Christ Jesus. According to chapter 20, it says that uh, consists in their freedom of guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, First of the moral law, being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, dominion of sin, the evil of affliction, the sting of death, the victory, and it just goes on and on and on. Uh, and those, Yeah, the great irony is that in the biblical worldview, liberty is actually binding. It's, it's wide open space that is actually slavery, where everything goes, right? Licentious, every form of licentiousness is on the table. That's slavery. It's when we actually are restricted to what simply what God says and nothing more, nothing less. That's actually freedom. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sure. I'm reading a book that talks about when you jump those fences that you were talking about. That's called the false gospel and heresy. And you read all about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you read a lot about false gospels and heresies and winds of doctrine and being blown around and yeah, all that stuff. We need those fences so that when we're being blown around, we have something to hit. Um, might hurt, but at least you won't go flying off the cliff, like Charlie said. Um, yeah, you guys should all read the Confession of Faith. It's pretty crazy. Um, so there's a lot of pretty crazy stuff in there. Um, all right, any last questions or comments? Okay. Um, well, let's pray and ask God to uh, prepare us to worship. 
Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we praise you for how you have loved us and how you have given us your truth. God, we ask you this morning that you would work uh, humility, that you would give us humble minds, that you would give us this like-mindedness that Paul talked about. We desire, Lord, to grow together. We desire to be challenged by each other. We desire to learn more about the truth. Um, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do these things in humility, not in arrogance or presumption or uh, to create division um, or to be blown around by winds of doctrine. Help us, Lord, to cling to what is true, to you, the rock, to our Lord, Jesus, who is the word. Father, please grow our community. Please knit us together in this common faith we have in Christ. Please also prepare us as we come to worship. Please feed us. Please clothe us with Christ's righteousness. Wash us and transform us, Lord. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.